Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Setting the World Straight. And for this week's episode, we're going into an interesting new zone. This is the first time we're going to talk about some world affairs, international relations, geopolitics, and a few kind of opinions from the team. We've got today joined by by two guests. We're going for the old triple approach. Um, I think we've enjoyed that the, mo- the most before. We've got Charlie coming back. And I think this might be the last time we're going to have Charlie on for a while, which seems like a real shame. So welcome, Charlie. For... Spasiba. Spasiba. Charlie is our, is our kind of um, uh, our, our Russian speaker on here. We'll have some really interesting opinions. And then we've got um, Tom joining us again. If you remember, Tom came on episode three and he's back to join us again. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to speak about um, quite an interesting topic. And from an interesting perspective as well, we're going to look at the conflict in eastern Ukraine, often called the war in the Donbass, um, that's been going on since 2014. But we're going to try and look at it from the kind of Russian perspective and see what is it that's going going on there? Why is it we in the West have one view of it and, and the Russians perhaps have a different view? And uh, think of a few examples. This is, of course, all, all opinion-based, and this is just based on some of our, our reading um, and research into the matter, and, and none of us are re- really experts. But hopefully, it will give some really interesting food for thought for you guys um particularly interesting uh charlie's our our resident uh russian speaker or he's certainly uh, in the process of learning and and has had lots of um probably more interaction with um with russian people than than most would 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 hear in the uk And, and and tom um has visited ukraine several times i believe is that right uh, just twice not quite just twice far, okay months. yeah we're making yeah he's been there a few times and so you know he's got a real interesting ground truth and then finally for, for me myself i'm actually um writing my master's degree dissertation on something linked to this at the moment so i've been doing a fair bit of the old book studying so getting into it what, what are we going to talk about today so first of all we're just going to give a quick overview of kind of the conflict and what's been going on there yeah Okay, so we, we're going to look at a, several reasons of, of perhaps why Russia became militarily and politically involved in Ukraine since since 2014, and we're going to look at it from a few from sort of two main perspectives. First of all, uh, sort of grand strategic, perhaps what's called a, a realist perspective, and then we're going to look from the more social side of it and some of the social ties that bond those two these two countries and how that creates uh, dramas. And then finally, we're going to just look at a, a bit of where the differences between how the west views this conflict and how perhaps people in russia do and and how that can and potentially lead to confusion and conflict so getting into it first of all intro to the conflict okay so we're going to start with a bit of an introduction to the campaign and really for the purpose of our listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with it to give you a bit of an introduction to some of the themes that we're going to be talking about so essentially it's centered around the year uh, 2014 what we see building up to that year um, is a change in uh, a lot of Ukraine's uh, view towards Russia and towards the West, and essentially being caught in a in a in a in a, in a tie between those those two kind of uh, pulling directions. What do we see militarily? We see the advancements of NATO um, east towards Russia and Ukraine looking to potentially join that organization, and we also see and uh, kind of more economic and social moves towards uh, Europe and the West as well through the perhaps ex- uh, talks about extension of the EU. And a lot of social movement towards that. This is particularly profound in the cities, especially the capital of Ukraine, where it's viewed that the significant percentage of the population are more Western leaning than the tradition of being a Soviet bloc country towards towards the East. However, on the other side of it, you've got Russia that's really keen essentially to not lose what was traditionally the second state of the Soviet Union, really, after Russia, with strong historic ties to Ukraine. And they're pressuring um, Ukrainian politicians quite hard to the extent that the uh, Ukrainian uh, president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, um, essentially is operating uh, against the will of his people to an extent. And what we see there is the the Maidan uh, protests of 2014, early sort of January uh, to February 2014, huge violent protests in the capital, um, stoked by this this. Uh, clash between what the government, um, who the government are siding with, i.e. the Russians in the east, and who the population, certainly in the capital, are siding with, um, i.e. the western kind of kind of powers. And that uh, culminates in, in Yanukovych getting ousted um, in, I believe, in February 2014. 
quite soon after that, we see two quite bold moves, uh, either directly or allegedly by Russia. The firstly, we see the annexation of Crimea. So a region, a peninsula of Ukraine gets annexed by uh, the Russian state uh, fairly openly. Um, and then second of all, a couple of months later, we see a populist uh, rebellion in eastern Ukraine um, of pro-Russian separatists. Um, and again, there's, there's, there's large spread allegations that the Russians have, have quite directly supported this, this uh, uh, rebellion in, in the region known as the Donbass, essentially the, east, the, the Russia-facing side of Ukraine. So it brings us to an interesting question. What we're looking at here, this sounds like it's something out of the Napoleonic period. It sounds like something out of the 18th or 19th century. Nation states going and seizing terrain in it, abroad across their borders. It's not something we really see in the modern era. So what's going on there? Why is it the Russians have decided to be so bold? And what I think is particularly interesting, if we look at the ramifications for Russia afterwards, the sanctions and the economic impacts of that, it can be viewed as actually quite a, a negative thing for them to be involved in. It's been quite damaging to them and probably quite predictably so. So really our question today is, is to understand that a little bit, bit more. Why on earth did the Russians decide to do this? I don't know whether the team's got any thoughts. Yeah, so I think um, three things that have sort of come to mind during that introduction. Uh, firstly, you know, what motivates uh, Vladimir Putin's foreign policy? Uh, and fundamentally, you know, he is a, a classic kind of strongman leader who aspires back to an age when when Russia was this great, literally great power, um, and motivated hugely by the humiliation of the 1990s, mm. when Russia was at its absolute lowest after the fall of the uh, Soviet Union and the, and the collapse of, of, of the USSR. You know, Russia goes through this this decade, and, and the, the West allows really Russia to go into just a freefall, um, and you know, corruption is rife and. Um, you know, clearly Boris Yeltsin was a very flawed, you know, uh, leader of Russia during that time. So the humiliation of that combined with Putin's fundamental belief that Russia should be this great power, um, I think motivates um, his willingness to, to, to have this aggressive foreign policy. And then I think the other thing that, you know, is worth talking about straight away um, is is that the, the type of conflict is clearly... You know, this is a, a new um, doctrine that we've seen um, that, that, it, that we call hybrid or, or grey zone warfare, whereby, you know, these are separatist soldiers speaking Russian, using Russian equipment, but crucially for Vladimir Putin on the international stage, it's plausibly deniable. Yeah, because it's not directly attributable. It, exactly yeah. that. It is a sub-threshold conflict somewhere in between peace and sort of stabilizing from the protests and a full-out, you know, kinetic um, conflict. So, you know, he's got this uh, very confident, uh, aggressive posture, and he also wants to trial this this new doctrine in order to achieve his aims. Um, yeah, the view of the... the it's interesting you, you mentioned the, the humiliation of the 1990s and this idea that a population, not an individual, can be humiliated. And, and I think that's quite, you know, yeah, there's the, the economic freefall and arguably maybe a secondary effect of that of being, being quite humiliating. But it's this point of prestige as well. You know, the, the Russia was the number two country, if not rivaling number one for, for a long period. And suddenly in the 1990s, they're re relegated to a regional power at best. Um, and, and, and you could argue from the West perspective, a little bit of showmanship on the international stage could have perhaps prevented the, the extent to which Russia felt humiliated. We look at you know, the conflicts in Yugoslavia, et cetera, where essentially Russian interests were ignored blatantly um, by a lot of the Western powers for, for not really much gain. Yeah, I think there's a large identity issue following the fall of um, communism in the late 90s and a complete reshuffle in, in, in Russian sentiments. Uh, you know, the emotion of the country itself at the populist level was completely changed overnight um, to make proud... Uh, you know, military state with strong armed forces, not so strong economy, but um, very strong national sense of identity. And that's quite common amongst all of the Western great powers. You know, the British Empire, French, Spanish, Portuguese, even the Germans at their stage had a, a really strong sense of national identity. I mean, Francis Fukuyama, that's a book you recommended me to read, Charles, um, Identity, talks about isophumos and megalophumos, and basically these two words coming from Greek. Isophumos being content with 
your level of identity but not wanting to exceed this and a megaphemos is you want to be the best you want to achieve you want, you want to be pushing towards the front and i think all of these western great powers have always had a degree of this and suddenly they've been chopped at the knees um yeah. and they're never gonna they're never gonna settle just like we wouldn't and the french wouldn't and the spanish wouldn't to be a second rate state they want to be back on the world stage yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, if we look at the, how we're going to structure this argument, we're actually going to start talking about some of the big grand strategic ideas and, and perhaps what's uh, the terms known as realism. But actually, we've gone straight into the social side and it's perhaps slightly more interesting. And, then, and the idea of this social identity of a culture, I think like, let's dive into that. I mean, ultimately, yeah, how do the Russians view Ukraine? I mean, I, I've heard analogies of it's almost like the kind of English and the, and the Scots um, and perhaps... The English maybe view the Scots as 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 more more as one than may, than the other way around, whereas the Scots would never call themselves uh, perhaps as being at one with the English, but the English would see the Scots as maybe at being being at one with them. And there's a kind of uh, uh, for 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 a lot of Russian speakers, there's maybe the idea of this this Slavic unity, which essentially becomes quite easily centered around Russia as the as the biggest uh, Slavic state. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear Tom's perspective from from when he was in the Ukraine. Uh, what I would say from my experience talking with uh, you know Russian friends and, and Russian um, language teachers with with whom I've you know built up relationships over the last you know two or three years. Unfortunately, at the moment in Russia, there is a genuine political apathy from the middle class. You know, they are resigned to the fact that their political system is fundamentally. Uh, corrupt, and and they are resigned to the fact that, you know, their democratic process is extremely nominal, um, and that they just have to get on with their own lives and hope that in time these things improve. So, from that regard, you know, tr trying to gauge whether they have a a feeling of solidarity with their Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Honestly, I couldn't say from the, the people with whom I've spoken, but what I would say is they feel no sense of solidarity with their leader, Vladimir Putin. Mm. Uh, you know, it's noticeable the difference between speaking to them in person when I was lucky enough to go to St. Petersburg versus uh, speaking with my teacher over the internet when we have our, our, our lessons online. He, he is genuinely reluctant to talk about Vladimir Putin over Skype, over, you know, uh, Zoom because he, he fears for you know the, the Russian authorities' ability to listen to our conversations. And, so, and it's fascinating you know, in the 21st century that you have Russia where politics has this, uh, in this nation, has a, has a lead articulator. There's Vladimir Putin is, is, uh, is, is the Russian policy in one person, which is, which is quite interesting. Um, uh, yeah, an interesting perspective. It's interesting that you use the term that kind of that oneness and that collective identity as well, because I've heard it phrased in other words and I've heard it called um, a kind of cultural uh, chauvinism as well. And actually that it's not necessarily the, the, the two nations seeing themselves as, as uh, together, but equals, but together, but there's very much a, a big brother, little brother relationship and that they just feel and that uh, in certain parts of, of the Russian political society, they view it as almost their right to dominate Ukrainian policy, um, be it based on on, on history or or, some, or or the kind of cultural ties. Yeah, I'd say that's quite a good um, good analogy. The big brother, little brother. I'd say there are two analogies going on concurrently with the Ukraine crisis, um, and this is from when I went to Kiev on holiday, even twice, um, and got chatting to a lot of locals, and you see a lot of the soldiers who have been at the front who come back for their weekends leave, and they still wear their uniforms in the bar because you know they're quite proud of what they're doing, and you get to chat to them. Um, I think historically you have the big brother, little brother analogy where you've got um, obviously former Soviet Union uh, being the big brother and then the little brother feels mistreated, uh, largely down to a lot of economic distress. I mean, Ukraine was hit pretty hard under the Soviet Union. Um, they had large outbursts of famine where you know farmers were in the fields Hold in the more, day. wasn't there in there, yeah. Yeah, the farmers were in the fields in the day bringing out crops and then starving in the evenings because they couldn't take cuts as all getting yeah. shipped back to Moscow and, and a lot of resources were pulled out of Ukraine because they don't quite see themselves as um, ethnically the same. You know, yeah. they don't, they're not, they don't see themselves as quite the same. And the Russian um, isn't the language in Ukraine. Ukrainian is a slightly different version. Oh, this is a Slavic language. And but there's another analogy. And you talked about England and Scotland. 
I'd say it's more like the rest of England and London. Now, if you, Kiev is a very metropolitan city, um, lots of Western shops in, in the central market where a lot of these protests happen. You know, now a few years ago, um, it's all big Ukraine, big Ukrainian flags with European Union circles. There's a massive flower bed of uh, an EU flag, and are quite clearly pro-EU. But I don't think it completely represents the rest of Ukraine. Just like London of the UK, a lot of people in the outskirts, um, in the north, let's say that's where I'm from, would say that London's almost a different country um, because we, the culture of the attitude in London is completely different to let's say, um, North Yorkshire. So I think there's that going on in Ukraine between Kiev, where there's a quite strong pro-EU leaning, um, where the demonstrations happen in a lot of rural areas, especially towards the east of Ukraine, is a completely different sentiment. Yeah, we've discussed that on a previous podcast, haven't we? It talked about how there are the, um, there's the small, there's, there's the vast majority of the population or, or grouping or organisation but within that, there's a small group who have a huge amount or a disproportionate amount of influence for their size. And perhaps um, th- that is the same point in Ukraine that, you know, there's a there's a there's a minority, a, a, what's sometimes called a, a chattering class, isn't there? Or the kind of uh, elites or maybe intelligentsia or something who are driving this forward, which might not actually be indicative of the wider population. But ultimately, it's those small uh influences that that, that, um, that, that matter. And I think it's, it's the same in Russia as well, arguably. I mean, you think about Russia, as we've discussed in the in the 1990s, and did the average Ru- Russian citizen give a shit about the wider ideals of, of a greater Russia when they were struggling to make ends meet economically? Probably not. And it's only really when the economy's improved that they've been able to uh, start leaning on some of these more kind of uh, 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 social ideas yeah uh building on the social points and the you know how that plays into the russian psyche uh you know russia is an old-fashioned country in 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 many ways and if you think about uh the relationship that putin has cultivated with the orthodox church in russia that is quite a powerful um use of the Orthodox Church to maintain a level of kind of domestic control and to give Putin uh, credibility with in the eyes of the Russian people. However, what's interesting when it comes to the Ukraine is that in 2019, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church declared its independence from the Russian Orthodox Church, which was profoundly humiliating for Putin and for the Russian Orthodox Church. And, you know, it, it is uh, in part to do with the fact that basically the, the Russian Orthodox Church has been bought out by Putin. And, and you know, you see there's a huge amount of investment in, in the uh, Orthodox churches, for example, in St. Petersburg, but, but across the whole country. And, and it's, it's a corrupt system that Putin has, has like I say, has bought to, to gain that credibility. Yeah, or legitimacy, we could even call it. Because yeah. if you look, you know, uh, Putin was widely regarded pretty strongly in Russia initially because he came in at the same time as huge economic growth, ultimately linked to the fact that the price of oil was soaring. And that's a huge part of Russia's economy. So Putin comes in great. He's bringing loads of money into the country. Um, And then uh, consequently, there's a great degree of elective legitimacy as well. People were voting him in. However, we get to this point now, people are getting a little bit tired of the same guy, that elective legitimacy is dropping off. The economy is worsening. And so he's trying to find something maybe new to, to, to lean on. And this idea of kind of um, being the the representative traditionalist values um, suddenly becomes his like talking point, especially in Russia, you know, aging population. It becomes quite popular. You know, at the end of the day, we all know that um, a leader using foreign policy to distract from a weak domestic situation is a strategy as old as time itself. Putin has done that, absolutely. You know, when he first came into power in in 2000 and that first kind of four years in power, you know, it wasn't just the rest of the world that was trying to work out what he stood for. It was also within his own country. And you had credible uh, Russian politicians, you know, grouping together under his party to try and establish, you know, stability and move forwards as a a credible economic power. Um, And, you know, we've seen really in parallel the 
um, the fall of, 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 of Russian uh, democracy as Putin's gradually, you know, let's say, um, got rid of the barriers, the sort of pretense of a, of a democratic process alongside the gradual decline in, in the economy of Russia in the sense that he's, you know, had this group of uh, oligarchs that have, you know, had this agreement with Putin right back in 2001, 2002. And subsequent to that, it has been a, a, a very, um, an economy extremely reliant on oil revenue, as you already mentioned. Mm. Um, the economic sanctions put in place since the Ukrainian um, crisis have absolutely crippled uh, Russia. And they're, you know, increasingly on a, on a, on a thin you know, thin margin. And, you know, that's the bit that fascinates me because I kind of think, you know, surely they saw that one coming, that they were going to get huge economic sanctions coming for it. And was it that they were um, either a so buoyant that that, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't cripple them and they, and they believed it wouldn't say, or or they didn't care. Or was it that this was such a crisis that the idea of the loss of potentially Ukraine to NATO or the EU was so important to them that they were willing to weather the storm of those economic um, devices that could have could have should have been predicted, which makes this so kind of fascinating. Yeah, I um, think there's you know there's um, momentum behind that. I think that Russia has always had a focus towards the West. I mean, its eastern border has not really posed a threat to Russia. I mean, I know they fought the Japanese in 1912 or around that date, but since then it's largely been um, Western focus. And even before then, you had Napoleon invo- invade through the Eastern Bloc. Um, in the Second World War, the Germans invaded through the Eastern Bloc. Um, and talking about you know, prisoners of geography, the book Tim Marshall, he mentions a lot on this. They did not want to lose Ukraine as a 1,000-mile buffer zone. Um, and looking strategically now, uh, and strategic implications have domestic implications. You can get a lot of popular support from um, the population who think, hold on, NATO are now doing exercises in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland. Um, Belarus is still on side, but now, now Ukraine, the biggest of the buffer zones. Um, I think German army group Charlie went through there and got defeated. You know, quite a significant yeah. battle zone. It is now going to fall to the to the West, and if if Ukraine did fall to the EU, and then suddenly NATO, ten years later, you could see NATO exercises in a parallel universe happening in the Donbass region. Yeah. which is only a stone's throw away from Moscow, which is not where we want to be. Oh, yeah. And it's fascinating there, isn't it? Because arguably, you know, the, perhaps the, it could be argued that the general population uh, doesn't uh, read into the the idea of some of these, geop- you know, the idea of strategic depth and stuff like that. That's, that's great for all the kind of um, uh, the, the political kind of uh, think tanks and maybe the military to think about that. But the general population doesn't. So maybe this social side of the conflict is actually just framing by the government to put it in in terminology that the the population will would be open to, and that actually it goes on to this whole idea. You're right of of, of that actually at this core is this a question of realism and power and strategic depth? Yeah, I mean, fascinating. Another aspect to consider is you know where there's conflict and where there's kinetic firefights, you have casualties, and you know, what the Russian state has realized is that actually the Russian people don't like seeing their soldiers come back in body bags. And so, you know, you've seen this fascinating development, um, which is not a new concept of mercenaries, of private armies being employed to do the dirty work of, you know, uh, countries, most notably with the, the, the Wagner Group, which mm-hmm. is a, a Russian mercenary group of, of privately contracted soldiers um who are now being used you know in a much more prominent way and i mean across the globe i mean interesting yeah. the french have, have pulled out of mali and uh, one of the key red lines for the french involvement there was involvement of the of the wagner group that was a red line i think for the french government and they've 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 enacted on that and, and essentially looking to withdraw yeah and so you know i i, I would be interested to know you know, what the average Russian's perspective is on those mercenary groups in the sense that they will know that they are, you know, Russian citizens and or let's say Russian speaking individuals. Um, but whether they have the same sense of uh, protection and desire to, you know, to, to look after, you know, their own in the same way that they'd have their own professional soldiers. I don't, I don't know. Isn't there a Varna group headquarters like literally next door to the uh, FSB's headquarters? FSB, sorry, being the KGB, the modern KGB, the um, the Russian secret intelligence services. Seems a bit convenient, doesn't it? 
I think it's been quite an interesting shift what we talked about there with um, regard to casualty rates. And across the world, um, the public acceptance for casualty rates and any kind of attrition has almost become zero. And 1945, the Russians until that point had lost what, nearly 20 million people. Um, you know, the, the yeah, implications. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, the implications for the country, crazy. even now, there is still a disparity between numbers of men and women in that country because of the death rates. Wow. It's, it's left a massive um, demographic scar on Eastern Europe. And if you go out there, you can see it. It's, it is oh, yeah, perhaps it contributes to that, you know, that, that birth rate that Russia suffers, or not birth rate, sorry, the aging population. Ultimately, there must have been thousands, if not millions of, of, of women who couldn't find a partner because they'd been killed in, 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 in that war. And that, that must have had a huge social impact. Yeah, I mean, we, we look at the Second World War and the German implication. I mean, Operation Sea Lion existed. The, the plans to invade Britain existed. But they didn't become that credible. Um, and I know in the 70s, they did a big war game of this. I think it was Warminster did it. And they essentially said that the Germans wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, yeah, great. We, we would have won Operation Sea Lion, wasn't it? Largely down to. It's the um, Navy, wasn't it? That was the, the, right. the Navy yeah. and the Mount Rivers in the southeast and Norfolk. Oh, right. Norfolk oh, being really? a pain in the arse invade. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you for Norfolk. Um, how, however, you know, for the Russians, this is a real, real scar. That's 22 million. The Holocaust mm-hmm. happened on their territory, in their land. You know, the Einsatz group and we're taking people out. And this is why it's so contentious for the Russians. It's part of their blood. Whereas we fought in the skies and we fought in the French beaches, but we didn't have a Holocaust happen. Yeah, that that, that societal pain from the, the social, you know, the uh, the Second World War, or the, they call it the Great Patriotic War. I mean, God, even yeah. look at the terminology that they've used there, and even infers the kind of suffering that and, and commitment that went into that. Like, yeah, it, uh, uh, generations later, it's still got to have a got to have a huge factor. Yeah, exactly, and, and a feeling of feeling vulnerable. And yeah, we, exactly, and the vulnerability. You know, Germany was just another western power you know, we see germany as to be quite distinct but it's not now it's all nato and uh, not to say that's going to happen again but for them to lose territory that they've gained through such bloodshed um and held for 70 years is going to have a massive domestic policy yeah. um implication uh, that, uh, and we've mentioned that term strategic depth without just explaining it which i feel is is a bit of a poor show and i'm going to give it a little bit of a an attempt here for russia what the hell do we mean by strategic depth? That sounds like a big fancy buzzword. Let's put it in simple logic. Essentially, Russia is a great big, huge country. It can have a huge armed forces, but if they're not in the right place, they're, they're useless. So if they're sat back in St. Petersburg and they come in through through the south, through Volgograd, they're probably pretty useless. Interesting that Russians have a huge rail system to, 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 to allow for this, but uh, the Russian military machine may be massive and impressive but it needs time and how do you generate that time we well, just generate the time through the, the space uh, the opponent has to move through ultimately even if they're not fighting against someone it takes a military force with all its logistics and supply lines it can't just straight drive like you're driving in your car to move across this territory so there's an element of a, a of space of the time it takes for your opponent to maneuver there's an element of, of the warning it gives you as well by crossing that international borderline you're getting that. And so that just to explain kind of what we're talking about for strategic depth, that's really what we're saying. We're saying Russia's got essentially a warning country to give them time to prepare if um, they did feel uh, so kind of kind of threatened. Is that a fair explanation? Yeah, exactly. I can go into uh, a good table turn on this one and I'll add some interesting facts. If, if you look at this from the 1980 perspective and the other way around, we are British Army of the Rhine in Germany um, defending that Rhineland for uh, the oncoming Russian cohort, which is only in East and East Germany and Poland, um, near the two main breakout points. We had from Calais up until British Army Rhine, so a good 600 miles of buffer zone. The whole point of this buffer zone was to allow the Americans seven days, hopefully that buffer zone last seven days, um, to get their equipment all the way from mainland America to the UK to then deploy via Calais and hopefully reach somewhere in Holland or France where the front line is to then push back. Without that buffer zone, the Americans couldn't deploy because we weren't going to do another D-Day. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the average life expectancy of a platoon commander on the ground, they estimated to be about six minutes once in contact. We were going to get absolutely annihilated if it did kick off. Uh, you know, we but might have been slow defeated. slow them down and enable that. And the other way around, you know, if we didn't have the British Army's right and the Russian border extended all the way to Calais, we'd be looking at Dover. Uh, but they they discovered, didn't they, when they, when these things got released, probably in the in the noughties, um, 
the Soviet plan, I believe it was it the seven day plan or perhaps it was shorter. It may have been like even like three days. Essentially, the, the, the Russians obviously realize this as well. And they they designed their battle plan to be like, we need to defeat NATO in, you're right, the, the time it takes before the Americans can arrive. Because ultimately, you know, I think if you look at the stats all in, uh, NATO, be it America and all her allies, has more equipment, manpower, materiel, money than the Russians. But if it's not in the right place to fight the battle, if it's over stateside, um, you know, it can't be brought to bear. Yeah, so. I mean, let, let's face it, we should not underestimate the Russian military exercises, Zapad, which literally means West in, Ru- in, in Russian, that take place every two or three years on that border with the, the, the Baltic states. You know, near enough 100,000 Russian troops plus all the equipment, communications, vehicles, all there operating at a, you know, high redness state. You know, they're ready. Uh, you know, you talk about that that capacity to move uh, equipment from the United States mainlands to Europe in time to support those NATO efforts. You know, sometimes I, I really think we lose we lose perspective and we, and we forget just how just how close that is and how how fragile that um, that piece of land is in the Urals, uh, the, the buffer zone, if you like, mm-hmm. um, because you know. They talk about the sort of Thucydides trap where you have these sort of big powers building up their arsenals and eventually, you know, it's a bit like money burning a hole in your pocket. These armies just wants to engage, wants to fight each other. Is that and, the trap was uh, originally, you know, ancient Greek philosopher, I believe he's talking about, is it Sparta and Athens? Correct. And yeah. essentially saying that two uh, powers can't rise in coexistence. Correct. They eventually are destined for war. Yeah, and at I the moment, you know, at the moment, uh, it's used as a metaphor most commonly for America and China. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's a sort of separate podcast that we can talk about another time. Um, going back to the, um, you know, in your introduction, you, you asked us to think about this from the Russian perspective, you know, and from a Western perspective, we look at the way that Russia teaches history um, you know, the way in which it's trying to revere Stalin, mm. uh, you know, or certainly Putin has an agenda, which is uh, in part based around the uh, reverence of Stalin having sort of developed a sort of economic powerhouse in that kind of 20s and 30s. You know, I'm, I'm being deliberately, um, you know, um, basic with my... For analysis, yeah. and, and equally, you know, the Great Patriotic War, every year they celebrate, you know, Victory Day in, in, in May, and as far as they're concerned, they won the Second World War. That's how they celebrate. Um, so that's our perspective on what the Russians think. What the Russians think about us is quite different in the sense that we're just this arrogant former imperial power. That, and, you know, they loved, Putin has thoroughly enjoyed um, calling us out for our campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, we all know the narrative, you know, which which he would... Um, use which is that we go in, we try and enforce our values and our you know democratic it, system. It, pundits quit uh, what aboutism, isn't it? When you're like basically saying you're having to go up, you know, we will criticize Russia and he, and Putin will say, well, what about you? You do that as well, yeah. and give an example, and sometimes not a bad example. So you know, I guess uh, what I'm trying to do is just uh, draw it back to what the Russians think, as opposed to what we potentially you know consider our our, our perspective on the current state of, of play. And do I think the broader Russian population shares Putin's opinion of a of, of Western agenda? Yes, purely for the sake of the, purely for the reason that Putin has such a good control over communication in his country, mm. in the sense that the kind of state-approved media outlets, whether it's Russia Today or, or, or the, the other sort of state broadcasters, they have such a monopoly over the news um, inside mainland Russia, that yes, I could well believe they share the narrative Putin wants to push out, um, which another another you know massive cause for concern in my opinion, um, that this narrative is being believed by millions and millions of Russian people. Meanwhile, the Russian army is you know on NATO's doorstep at a state of high readiness. Yeah, we, uh, that's a great explanation by Charlie. I, I love it and linked some of our themes together. And I think we've we've covered quite well there. Actually, some of the what I call the realist ideas, you know, defensive realism, offensive realism about this strategic depth and the threat from NATO on Russia's border. And we hear it called Russia perceives itself as a fortress against the rest of the world. And we've talked about the social side of it. I, I've got a really interesting question. I don't know whether you guys have any opinion, and it's comparing 
we mentioned at the beginning the annexation of Crimea, and then we mentioned uh, the the war in the Donbass or the, the kind of rebellion in the Donbass and uh, the, the regions of Luhansk and uh, Donetsk. Um, they're quite different. They're quite different in their in their manner. Yet they happened months apart and in the same kind of region, roughly. You know, we've got Ukraine, quick decisive yes it used some of these subversive methods but we're talking days and weeks before that 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 happened and and it's been almost absolute you know russia has annexed that that region there's no debate about it yet we're still fighting in the donbass in 2021 and and that happened in 2014 i'm really fascinated in that what is the difference between those two so and and why is it so i think i've got a my opinion, as a rough answer to this one, is there's a there is one significant asset in the Crimean region, which I'm sure you can start thinking of now. This is not in Donbass. That's a warm sea port, which means you know ports of Mediterranean for trade. Secondly, the, the Black Sea fleet, which are in the same Sebastopol, place. Sebastopol, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Sebastopol, exactly. Um, now again, there's another emotional sentiment around Sebastopol and the Crimea. It's been lost many times. Um, it would be a bit of an embarrassment to lose that to the EU. Yes, I mean, it was quickly a little, not to interrupt Thomas Flow, but uh, Crimea was part of Russia until I think it was 1956 when Khrushchev came in. So the successor to Stalin come in after this great big strongman. You're like, God, how the hell do you take over this country that's been dominated by this one individual? And so Khrushchev says, well, I'm going to get the second most powerful part of the USSR, Ukraine, and I'm going to win them over to, to supporting me. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to give them some land. I'm going to give them Crimea. So in 1956, they, they gave it across. So I think in a lot of Russian political spheres, they see Crimea as just something that's been loaned to Ukraine temporarily. Um, but you're right, in history, it's it's gone back and forth. Yeah, and the, the Black Sea Fleet there now was facilitating operations in the Middle East. Um, it's one of their two only naval bases significant ones in the, the Western regions, so the Mediterranean and the Baltic region as well. I think it's Kaliningrad is the second area. Um, however, so that was a, a quick grab. We can secure this. This is now Russian territory. Don't need to worry. We've now secured our vital military asset, vital ground to use a military so. Um, you know, you, you know, your key terrain, you need to have effects on the key terrain. Being Ukraine, you don't need to hold it. The effects of the, the, upon Ukraine, which is desired, is not necessarily to, to hold Ukraine or to completely own Ukraine, is to block Ukraine from entering the EU. Now, what will the EU never let happen? They will never let Ukraine enter the EU whilst there is an insurgency going on in Ukraine. Now, an insurgency is very cheap. It's very cheap. You need some special forces units. You need some munitions going in there. Keep it ticking over like a fire. Keep that going on. You've invade Ukraine because that looks really bad. Um, and whilst that is going on, this 800-mile buffer zone is maintained. Um Ukraine will not become part of the EU. You will not have NATO excises happening with Donbass. And you've secured vital ground, which is your Black Sea Fleet. It's ticked off both of Russia's aims. All he needs to do now is just keep this ticking over um, for the next yeah, 10, 15 years. I think you've absolutely nailed it there, Tom. You know, that view of like, one, that there was a critical asset in Crimea that they need. And and see, uh, navies are, are, are an interesting one as well, because you kind of think, well, everybody lives in the land. Why the hell do we invest in all in the world's navies? I'm getting a little bit bit off piece, but it comes down to the primacy of trade. You know, world trade goes via the sea still, and it and it probably will do for perhaps into into the forever. And ultimately, and how do you control trade? The only way you can have that that managed is is through uh, the navy, which is you know why the U.S. Navy is absolutely huge, and the U.S. Navy is stationed around essentially the, what are the key, world's key trade routes so having a, a powerful navy is is vital um, even for an energy dependent country like like russia but um yeah ukraine if you look at the donbass it, it it was a it was a bit of a difficult child of ukraine in the first place so maybe seizing a territory like that isn't great for russia see somewhere that's economically weak um and actually they just need to cause chaos in that country so that they don't and as you say, join the EU. Yeah, I mean, join, join uh, sorry, in, in previous podcasts, we've talked about leadership, and I think we can't talk about Russia and Putin without considering Putin's leadership over the past 20 years. Um, and, you know, also the way in which Western leaders have interacted with him, you know, starting back in 2000. So, who have you got in 2000? You've got the, the, the sort of main um, figures, you know, President Bush, you've got Prime Minister Blair, you know. 
both of those individuals tries to engage with Putin early on because they saw some of uh, the potential. They they didn't know what they had. Didn't know the, he uh, wasn't a Putin was entity. Bush said, uh, I've, I've looked in his eye and I've seen the character of the man or something like that. I've, yeah, I've probably misquoted it. him and essentially said, Vladimir Putin's a, a good guy in my in my eyes. Yeah, correct. It was a catastrophic uh, yeah, bit of PR there. Um, I mean, okay, going right back, um, what's uh, a very uh, informative story is after 9-11, um, Putin was immediately cooperative with the U.S. and gave the U.S. access to uh, its air bases um, on the Russian border with Afghanistan, I want to say. Um, And, you know, in the immediate aftermath of of them having access to these air bases, Putin goes, well, when can I join NATO? Uh, You know, genuinely serious, dead serious question. Um, I think that probably set the tone, this realisation by Putin, actually, no, that's not how this works. Uh, you know, we had such an exceptional moment with 9-11 that that was a great yeah, moment I, of I unity. Mean, they wanted a bond, didn't they, over kind of, let's have this shared enemy of Islamic terrorism being, of course, the, the US after yeah. uh, 9-11. But, and then in Russia, you know, let's not forget about um, what's going on in um, Chechnya. Chechnya. Yeah. You know, the, the Russians have been battling that for, for ages. And they said, so let, let's bond over this. And that's that cr- classic example of, yeah, the the West maybe turned their noses up at what could have been an opportunity. I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought this back in 2015 when um, both the West, being NATO, and the Russians were launching airstrike campaigns in Iraq and Syria upon ISIS, all by be slightly different techniques. I saw this personal view as a good opportunity to do some some joint operations to work together. Um, you could do, share basic intelligence, share refueling aircraft. Um, have some designated areas and, and it would be an opportunity to improve relations through joint joint operations and talking about Chechnya as well I mean with, with Putin supporting the US after 9-11 it, strategically for him it was quite a good idea the reason being a lot of the Chechen fighters were actually coming from Mujahideen in Afghanistan so if you can just stop them at source it stops them from coming to you in in Russia because they'd stoked that fire 20 years prior to this yeah so, sorry, just drawing back to the, 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 the leadership somewhere, I sort of sidetracked there quite quickly. Yeah, sorry, I it's, brought it's you so off. easy, that, isn't it? That was my yeah. We just love tactics. It, it, yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly. But, okay, so you take, you say to Bush, okay, Bush failed. He failed to have that, um, to make the measure of the man, as did Blair. Um, Angela Merkel, really interesting one to consider, her relationship with Putin. You know, she speaks Russian, he speaks German. Um you know, you can take examples of when Merkel has stood up to Putin over the years. Um, you know, arguably she was the one that had the, 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 the gravitas, you know, through sort of longevity, but also through her, her broad popularity uh, back in back in Germany uh, to to stand up to Putin's more aggressive postures. Um, but then equally, she was held hostage by this Nord Stream 2 uh, oil pipeline that was a deal struck before she became Chancellor of Germany. And as we you know, we are now living through the the consequences of this reliance on, on so, Russia. So this oil. was the move to essentially uh, build a pipeline direct into kind of Central Europe rather yeah. than going via uh, Eastern Europe. Um, obviously, it's caused a lot of controversy for people in Eastern Europe who see themselves as getting cut out of the system. Yeah. But, um, and so Angela Merkel, I think, is one who potentially did have the measure of Putin and, and, and had this ability to stand up for herself and for the West. You know, fast forwards a bit, into the 2013, 2014, Cameron, uh, in my opinion, very weak foreign policy, uh, did not have any gravitas to stand up to, to a man of Putin's sort of strength of character. Emmanuel Macron, when he's elected in 2017, goes to, uh, or no, actually invites Putin over to the Versailles Palace uh, quite early on, and makes just posture of standing up to Putin in a, in a way that, that was refreshing after so many Western leaders failing to take that stance against him. Um, and sorry, it probably feels like quite a roundabout way of coming on no, no, to Putin's diplomatic posturing during the ongoing Syrian civil war. And, and for me, you know, I wonder what the Russian perspective is on Putin's behavior during the, the Syrian civil war, but certainly from a Western perspective, he has played that diplomatic role that traditionally you know, America, the UK, France, these traditional Western powers would dominate that space normally in terms of owning the peace talks, um, bringing the uh, various different countries together. 
Yeah, and something that compounds some of this is this Russian militarism that we've seen in the recent years is perhaps that um, that they are a nation, uh, arguably similarly to the West as well, that has got a large military-industrial complex, a huge part of their economy that's reliant on military industry and selling arms um, and weapon systems across the globe. Um, and that sometimes um, that industry being such an important part of the economy does drive them towards slightly more militaristic behaviour. So quite an interesting topic we've been discussing today and highly complex. You know, it's multifaceted, there's economic, there's social, there's political sides to it, and it can all be interpreted in loads of different ways. So I, I put the question out to the group, like, why are we bothering doing this kind of detailed, in-depth understanding of this? What what use is it for us as perhaps, um, you know, kind of Western uh, leaders to, to understand it in this way? I personally think it's quite a good useful exercise in looking at what we'd call in the military red teaming things, looking at things from an enemy perspective, both strategically and, and tactically, and how tactical actions or operational actions can have a strategic effect. For example, the annexation of um, the Warm Sea port, the Black Sea Fleet, that's had it's an operational slash tactical action, a small scale action that's had a massive strategic effect um, across the, the West. I think that's quite useful for us to look at how we would respond in in the opposite foot and how we would consider moral actions to be different sometimes and this is maybe a mistake we sometimes make we look at an action that's made by an opposition we go that's a moral you can't do that well, hold on sometimes we would potentially do the same thing in the opposite way around it's quite a useful exercise in self-reflection for us to analyze this yeah like the, the overly simplistic um view from the west of russia is they're just bad guys who, who purely want to go and grow an empire and seize territory and perhaps that's that's although arguably there's maybe elements of that are true that um that's such a simplistic understanding of it is is really unhelpful yeah i mean we, we talk about the annexation of ukraine i mean it wasn't that long ago the americans did the bay of pigs um you know the, the u.s armed forces invasion um into cuba and they talked we did the attack into um into panama and we've done falcons versus uh operational um military involvements and which which the russians would go well that's that's immoral when you're having a go at us for doing the same thing in ukraine and the question is are they immoral or not is to be debated but the fact is that we are also doing military operations into other countries across the world yeah and you know when it comes to the sphere of influence and, and whether or not you know ukraine um what we as the west should meddle in the ukraine or if we should just leave it to be this sphere of influence of the Russian people, um, you know, you have to take the great statesman uh, Henry Kissinger, who who was adamant that this is absolutely the Russian sphere of influence, uh, and, and we, the West, should go nowhere near that. Um, but I think I think more more broadly, you know, uh, and hopefully we've got some civilian listeners to our to our podcast. Um, you know, why is it relevant to you to have a, a bit better understanding of uh, you know the Ukrainian crisis and understanding sort of Putin and and the Russian um mentality behind that well you know you only have to look at the energy crisis um that is going on currently across you know europe you only have to look at um the actions of um lukashenko and, and belarus both with opposition figures and also the, the, the impending refugee crisis on the polish border um you know meddling in various different uh, western elections such as the election of trump in 2016 potentially uh, you know interference in the, in the brexit referendum in 2016 and, you know, also how that's impacted on the leadership of various Western leaders, which is perhaps a point I, I failed to quite articulate. But, you know, you, we, are, we are looking at this and looking at, you know, the Ukrainian crisis, this, this moment of um, tenacious uh, foreign policy, you know, outrageous, really, um, from a Western perspective, that suddenly this, this 21st century country can, can have the... Um, Audacity. Uh, yeah, audacity to not only, you know, uh, annex an entire, um, you know, country or part of, you know, the Crimea and then, you know, deliberately provoke this instability in a second country. Um, you know, it's not just the effect that's had on the ground there. It's the effect it's had on presidents of the United States, Bush, Obama, Trump, and indeed still with Biden today. You know, the effect it's had on Western leaders from Merkel in Germany to you know, Cameron in uh, the UK, Macron and uh, Hollande before him, you know, this had such profound consequences, you know, uh, that sort of ripple effect going out from this one Ukrainian Ukraine crisis. That's why we're, we're talking about it today. And, and 
you know, understand the Russian perspective, really important in terms of making sure we're not just blindly following our own narrative. Can I ask a question? Um, it's a bit of a morality question. Uh, it's largely to listeners or to the ground if you'd like to answer it. Maybe want to um, think about it later. In terms of ethics and morality, is there a a good and a bad or a significant difference between the British fleet going down to Port Stanley to liberate um, Las Malvinas or the Falklands, as we call it, rightly so, um, from the Argentinian invasion, as opposed to the Russian annexation of Crimea, which was largely a pro-Russian area, from becoming invaded, albeit internally, by European Union um, politics. And that's one for thought. Yeah, oh god we could go into that, that discussion for, for ages and it's a fascinating one for you guys to you're listening hopefully to have a little bit of a reflection on it. and i think it brings you back into that whole idea of starting this this delve into geopolitics and geopolitics is it a science or is it a bit of an art well ultimately a lot of it comes down to your interpretation of the world which really comes down to philosophy you know are you going to take a realist are you going to take a liberal a, a liberalist are you going to take a utilitarian approach to to world politics there's so many different ways to look at these highly complex events and kind of what um, philosophical foundation you take in them. Uh, and that, I think that's what makes it a fascinating topic. It, it, it plays into those really interesting truths and, and interpretations that philosophy can bring to us. And there's, there's different ways to see um, the same event. And I think with that, that will we'll take this as an opportunity to conclude. Um, we've tried a bit of a, a tougher subject this week, our first foray into kind of international relations, geopolitics, Again, none of us are big experts in this, but we've we've done a little bit of reading. We've got a few opinions and hopefully we've stoked some interest in the subject and we've got you thinking about some of the um, concepts involved, which, which is, as Charlie's awesomely articulated, um, has, has relevance, not just for those dealing in, in, in conflicts, but for everyone listening. Um, thanks uh, for the team for joining me. Um, Charlie, it, it seems such a shame to potentially see you go and I, I hope we get you back on in a sometime soon because you've been honestly an absolute pleasure and 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 you've brought so much to this i've really enjoyed it thank you thanks uh, and, and and tom's uh joining us again and and hopefully he'll, he'll be on for a good few more episodes yeah i feel the northern quota <laughs> yeah he, he, he uh, hardens up our little our kind of uh, soft southern underbelly of the uh podcast um but thanks, guys, for tuning in. Um, this has been episode six of Setting the World Straight. If you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please, please, please give us a, a like, give us a subscribe, and importantly, give us a share. We're a really small podcast at the moment. But we're, we're enjoying making our content. We want to do a little bit more of this kind of uh, slightly tougher subjects. Um, and really, we, we, we rely on your support, and we rely on the support of, of word of mouth and your friends and family. So if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a like, give us a subscribe, give us a share. Um, and we'll have some interesting topics for you in the future.